Hello and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, poet and playwright, Mark Anthony Rossi. In this, our third year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here is your host. Strength to be human. This is your host, Mark Anthony Rossi, poet and playwright. Now we're on to episode 191, Crash Course on Military Writing. Now, if you recall some episodes back, I, I did an episode about military writing, but it was more of letters written from combat soldiers from like Civil War up until Vietnam. Just to show the different mindsets and the worldviews and also to show how sometimes censorship played a hand in it and how sometimes uh, the letters actually helped uh, in many cases the, the, the war because it kind of gave the uh, public some information that they didn't have before and it kind of got funneled over to to the to journalism. <laughs> I know one of the few episodes uh, where journalism is actually something uh, uh, positive and productive but it worked out that way in, in a number of occasions. Now this one going to be different because it's really about how to write various forms in the military, various reports, and, and etc. Okay? Now, it, I always find it ironic that the general person, you know, doesn't really associate writing with the military. The, the military is just a bunch of everybody's yelling and shooting stuff and flying airplanes and cursing and, and, uh, and wearing uniforms and all of that. Oh, yeah, and all that does happen in the military. I was in the Air Force for six years. So I definitely know that's the case. But that's not all what we're about. And writing is a big part of it. In fact, writing is a big part of the military tradition since the days of Julius Caesar. He wrote down extensive journals, especially of his big battle to take over Gaul, which is now modern-day France, how he needed to do that in order to be able to bring back something big to Rome so this way he can eventually become its ruler. You had to pretty much win your way in, in military prizes in order to be able to do that. He wrote extensively in, in his journals, which was awful, integrated with uh, various historians. One, I think he actually uh, brought with him on his journeys to help document stuff as well. And you find uh, very interesting um, notes and lines from him and then from the historian and how sometimes... They complement each other, and sometimes they just have uh, completely different viewpoints of the same battle or the same situation. But you got Julius Caesar. You got plenty of others over the centuries. Uh, one of the ones that really uh, brings me to mind here is is our American general, George Patton. Uh, he, he was famous to, to say, you know, um, I'm, beating, I'm beating Rommel here in the desert, with his tanks, because I read his book on, on how to deploy tanks out in, in, in battle. And he read about his philosophy. He read it in German. Um, George Patton, not just being a, a crass, uh, gutter language, uh, sort of a maniacal general like they make him in the movies, was a very well-educated man, a, a brilliant strategist, a man who spoke three languages, German, French, and Italian, ironically. And who wrote uh, at least 80 poems that we know of. So he was a poet as well. And he understood a great deal about 
writing and understood about how it was important, how a lot of ideas and, 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 and communication through that could be useful to study somebody or somebody's tactics. So uh, military writing has been there since thousands of years, okay? It's nothing that's that new. I guess the average public person just doesn't realize that it's real uh, bearing on all, all of our lives, and especially in the military. Now, on this show here, we're going to go into five different sections, all right? All right, the first one is going to be concise writing and military editing. I like to separate things whenever I can, but I found when I was looking at this more carefully that, in an ironic way, the more closer you are to following the rules strictly to concise writing, you're already doing some of the military editing. And vice versa. If you are military editing really carefully, you're starting to bring your, your, your piece of writing into more concise writing. And when we go over this, I think you'll see how there's a real connection there. That's why I put them together, because it would make no sense to separate them, because it, it would look like I'm just like recounting over again some of the same things, and we don't want to do that, all right? All right, so what do we got here? All right, here we go. In concise writing, you place the reason for the writing or the conclusion, all right, or what they call the civilians, the bottom line, all right, in the first paragraph. And preferably, if you can make it in a single sentence, a single clear sentence, that would be great. All right? If you state your thesis or your conclusion, which is the same thing as the bottom line, there's like five ways you can put this. All right? In a single sentence, it gives a stronger impression that you have a firm grip on the subject. Now, as much as writing in the military is important for you to convey thoughts and ideas and strategies onto others, especially uh, those uh, that are higher ranking to you that might actually have the authority to put things into action in the field or even into policy. Military writing is also a lot about who you are. And we'll, we'll go over these various forms where you'll notice that how organized they are, how clear they are, how, how much of a punch they can give says a lot about who you are, who you are as a person, who you are as a soldier. So, believe it or not, they, they, they have a sort of signature uh, of you. Your, your characteristics are in there. And, and I'm sorry to say whether this is fair or not, but let's say you're a wonderful soldier and you have a brilliant mind. If you don't put the attention to what you're doing and it looks like crap, people are going to get that impression about you. And that's something that you just telegraph to them. You can't get mad at them, but I'm better than that. Well, your writing should have reflected that. So, it's really important that you get this down correctly. Because it really is a reflection of you, whether you like it or not. All right. Now, the second most important thing to do with concise writing, in many ways, I feel it's almost the most important thing to do, but it's true that if you don't get that bottom line over there in the beginning, you kind of mess up the whole flow of, of concise writing. All right. The next thing is to use the active voice rather than the passive voice. And here's an example of active voice, because an active voice, when you're writing in the military, is a direct voice. An example, Red Sox beat Blue Jays. Boom. You can't get any more direct than that. Boom, right in your face. All right, a passive example is, the Blue Jays have been beaten by the Red Sox. If you can hear the active voice, it gets right to the point. All right, because the active voice is direct. It's authentic. It's forceful. 
And I don't mean forceful in, in some kind of like, you know, I throw you on the ground and punch you in the face kind of forceful. But it's a, it is right in your face. It doesn't need to punch you, but it's right there. Okay? Now, the passive voice, it's a real problem because it's slower. It's much longer. And, and here's what really gets my claw, okay? It tends to hide the doer of the action. That's the last thing you want to do on any kind of military writing. In fact, I tell people, uh, as a literary writing editor and writer, I tell people all the time that I, I, I really abhor anybody that tries to take responsibility. I don't like all these pen name things. I don't like all this crap about, yeah, I wrote that, but it's really about somebody else. I, I don't want to hear that kind of crap. Go work in the post office then if you want something safe. You want to write, well, guess what? That means you need to be authentic. You need to have less fear. And you definitely need to be able to own the responsibility of what you wrote. That's the same thing here. To have that whole passive voice, it kind of ruins everything. I mean, how the hell are you going to be afraid of writing something, but you're going to go into battle and maybe have to shoot somebody one day? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I shot three terrorists yesterday, but God forbid I'm afraid to write in a couple extra sentences over here. I don't want the colonel to get mad. Come on, folks. Got to be consistent. All right? Now, here's the, here's the interesting thing about this, all right? If you use the active voice, the characteristics of it help make the sentence shorter by at least 20%. That's a lot. Because if you had a 2,000-page, uh, you know, report, uh, that, that brings it down to 1,800 right away. So that's a lot of words chopped out, all right? Now, here's the, some of the other rules along that goes with this. And you'll see how military editing follows right behind this, okay? Because... Let's say you don't observe the rule of trying to keep your sentence short, trying to keep them 15 words or less. Let's say you did that for a little while and then you went and did some 26-word sentence, okay? Once you're done with something that's mostly within the realm of concise writing, now you can go to military editing and go back over there and chop that up. Maybe make it into two solid sentences that have about 13 to 15 words or maybe just chop it all down to 15 words, period, from 26. But that's what you need to do to be able to stay on course with this. So concise writing and military editing, they work hand in hand. All right? Shorter words. That's right. Three syllables or less. Very important. Write paragraphs that are no more than an inch deep. There you go. Another thing about being concise. Concise is brevity. Brevity is like poetry. But in the military, these sort of things are, are, are really critical because... People don't have, you know, three weeks to read a 97-page report and then try to figure out what, what can they do with it. They need to have things boiled down. They need it for, I, I would say, not only the, the, the moment's urgency about putting something actionable out in the field, but also they need it for their own, their own well-being. I mean, who, who wants to be uh, buried in reports? How do you stay military active? How do you stay militarily mobile? How do you stay with the military edge if you're out there reading thousands of pages or something, you got to have something that's going to hit the ground running. Boom, boom. That's why concise writing is so important in the military style of writing. Now, the last thing here is, and this is part of the what we're talking about, on not hiding the doer of the action, how you're taking responsibility. You want to use I or you as the subjects of the sentences. You don't want to go over to this unit, this squadron, this HQ, you know what I mean? This ice cream machine, whatever. Taking responsibility, I and you. Real important to do that. And that is really the heart of concise writing and military editing. 
Okay? I would say you follow as much as you can with concise writing as you're going around putting things together. Because, you know, it's your first draft. It's later on that when you go through the military editing, not only are you making it more concise, but it also gives you a chance to review things and rewrite things. Like any other writing, writing is rewriting in order to get it better. And that's what you'll have to do when, when concise writing. It's not going to come just in one draft. It's going to take a, you know, a moment or two. But once you've done it, you've, you've done something that has now become a habit of yours. It almost becomes like a science that you have to do this because these are the smarter ways in order to be able to convey something in a short and punchy fashion. So this way, these reports that we're going to talk about next, they become powerful tools. Tools that may enlighten somebody. Tools that might actually save somebody's life. Tools that might get you a promotion. Or at least tools that tell somebody, this person knows what they're doing. This person has a grasp on the issues. Here's something I can count on. Here's something we can use over here. Here's something we can use over there. So it says a lot about you too. All right, next. Number two. The point paper. Now, a point paper is a very short paper, often under uh, a page long. All right, It presents key points, events, positions, and questions in a brief and orderly fashion. Okay, Usually not longer than a page long. And what you normally do in something like this is you put together like two paragraphs. All right? Like maybe a little introduction and a little bit, a little preamble about what you're talking about. And then after that, it's really a bunch of bullet points. It's a collection of bullet points of critical thoughts that can be rattled off quickly in a meeting or a presentation. Oftentimes with a, a, a point paper, it's not just a paper that you just put together quickly and hand it over to somebody and you go have a snicker bar when no one's looking. All right. Sometimes it could be necessary for your own oral presentation in a group of people in that room where you're giving them all a copy of the paper they could follow and then now you're orally presenting it to them. It's what I had to do one time. I had a situation in Spain, and yeah, I'm, I'm a lot uh, older than you folks who, who are listening to the show, okay? So uh, when I was in Air Force Intelligence, it was in the 80s, and we didn't have no internet, really. We certainly didn't have any uh, cell phones or smartphones or anything like that. You know, I'm glad we had smart soldiers, right? But we didn't have that. But no different then than it is now, chatter you grab uh, in terms of signal intelligence from an organization that works for you, and you might get pieces of something that's going on, but it only gives you a fragment of a, of a greater picture, and you got to fill in the rest the best you can. Well, we got a fragment that said that there was going to be a terrorist attack in Spain. <laughs> that was it. They, uh, they had figured out that um, where it came from was somebody from Algeria. So all they had at the best, okay, is... Maybe it's a bunch of Algerians that are going to do an attack against Spain. They knew it was Spain because it said that clearly in the chatter, but Algerians is something you had to guess because that's where it came from at the time. That was all they had. Okay? They didn't even have a time frame. They didn't know anything else. All right? So in France and in Spain, they started grabbing a bunch of people. Okay? That were Algerians. Shuck them on down, try to get some information. They couldn't hold them very long because it wasn't like, you know, they had too much. But since they used the police as much as the military to help them with this, you know, they gathered information about stuff they were carrying, this, that, and whatever. Sometimes that could be useful. Well, I knew 
because I'd worked with the French on a training mission, and I learned a few things about them and, and what they did. And I found it was really interesting that the French, if they run out of ideas, uh, they have a funny phrase. It's called, trust the criminals. This means that if you got something where it could be of a real urgent nature and you just don't have much to go on, go talk to your criminal contacts. And it's amazing that you do have criminal contacts, but that's how it works. Because the French had realized a long time ago that when a person comes into your country to do, do harm, they're not coming in with a truck loaded with all the stuff they need. Yeah, how you doing there? I got some rocket launchers over here. I got some guns. I got some bombs. No, they're just coming in maybe through a train or through, a, through an airport or a bus or a car or whatever. Or maybe even sneaking across the border. But they're only coming with themselves and maybe a passport couple bucks, that's about it. All right? They need somebody inside that country to at least set them up with a safe house, someplace they can hang out and kind of stay away from people, keep down low. But if they need equipment, they have to go to the criminal elements to, in that society to get that stuff. Now, those criminal elements don't give a crap about what they're doing with the stuff as long as they get the money they want. And that's what the French should realize. If you can touch those people, the criminal, they might be able to tell you, yeah, I mean, it's not like I know this guy's name or where he's staying, but... Yeah, this dude that looked like an Algerian guy, he just bought a bunch of guns from us. There you go. You got some connections right there. So the, the French had something there. I did the reverse on that. I knew that my American uh, handlers were not going to listen to this. They were like, what? Let me get this straight here. You think this because of that, and all we know about it is that it's in Spain and maybe some Algerians are involved. Well, here was my theory. I went through the reports that we got from the police departments and the various, like, six different areas and where they grabbed these people, okay? And I noticed there was one thing in common with them all. They all had train tickets that came from Barcelona. Now, it's, I mean, since terrorism began to now, okay? People just don't literally go willy-nilly in some city they've probably never been before. Yeah, let me just go in that place and blow everything up. No, usually it takes planning. And the best planning is you want to case someplace. No different than if you're a criminal trying to rob a house or a bank or something like that. So there's a good chance that the people that were sending out, they were casing Barcelona. And they were using the trains to get there. Because, you know, it's a little bit more anonymous to travel. You're a bunch of other people, no one's really noticing or caring, and you're going about things. Got a little handbag with you, maybe taking a couple photographs. That's about it. I knew the Americans would laugh at my idea. I just knew it because it, it was so little to go on. And then when I told them what my, uh, my operating principle was, yeah, I learned some of these ideas from the French. That would be the end of uh, everything right there. How I probably get his laughter and probably thrown out of the room. Sorry, that's the truth. But I knew that if I could put together a point paper, because I knew most people didn't have anything else. I, I already knew that. I was one of the analysts in it. If anybody had anything, I'd know about it. And since we had the Spanish representatives, well, I go, let me give this a shot amongst everybody. It can't hurt. I already knew I wasn't going to say it's for life in the Air Force. I was in my fifth of my sixth year when I did this. So it didn't really matter to me if I got in trouble. I'm like, what are you going to do? You're not going to fire me? And you're going to put me in the post office? Oh, great. I smoke some more cigarettes and drink a little bit more before I get out of here. So I, it, to me, I, it was all, all upside to me. And maybe I could be right or maybe, you know, they're going to just put me over someplace else. Doesn't bother me. So I put together a point paper mentioning this. I mean, yeah, it's thin. It was thin, believe me. But again, nobody had anything. The Spanish were intrigued. They're like, okay, let's look at that. 
Let's look at maybe something's happening in Barcelona. Okay? If you want to do a terror attack in, in Barcelona, I, I, I guess they would have to surmise that you got to find out where there might be some meetings of a bunch of people where they could be possibly vulnerable at. They eventually found out that my idea worked and they found uh, terrorists were going were gonna to attack a, a, a hotel with government officials there. There you go. I mean, I was part of that operation. I didn't solve it at all. The Spanish took care of the rest of it and they did it all and God bless them. That's great. But that just shows you that sometimes all you got is a little bit of a lead but it can still be useful. I used the point paper as my only way to get this across. I never got in trouble for it because it worked out in my advantage. Everybody was happy. But I can imagine what would have happened if it didn't. But what I am trying to emphasize for you on this is the point paper, more than all the other papers we're going to talk about on this show, can get you in the most trouble, or, or, or in my particular case, the most, I guess you could say, uh, congratulations. Hell, they gave me a few days off extra. You know, I was able to um, hang out in Spain a little bit long. Uh, got drunk more than usual, which was great. You know, I, I, I had uh, um, some conflicts with some of my Spanish conflict uh, counterparts over there during this whole thing because they wasn't exactly thrilled with Americans. Uh, but we worked out. Uh, it worked out pretty good. And everybody was happy. We got along a, a lot better than you can expect it. And, you know, you can't say more than that. I mean, I was happy with that. I got lucky maybe. But in the end... It's all we had. It just happened to work out. And I'm kind of fortunate about that. But it's a, it's a, it's a great story, a, a, a true story. But it just shows you how sometimes a combination of, of just your gut instinct, writing something down, just a little bit of old-fashioned detective work can, can really be a, a, an actionable thing that can possibly save people's lives. But whatever you do with the point paper, just make sure... That you're pulling in as much as you can pull in there with those bullet points, you know? Because that's what I, that's pretty much what I did in that, in that paper. My bullet points were like some of the b- most bizarre thing you probably ever read in your life. Uh, yeah, uh, nobody else has anything else. <laughs> uh, um, but we, we have a bunch of uh, uh, Algerians that retained and they all have this common thing in, in, in common. They had these train tickets. And maybe these train tickets were used in the scouting locations in Barcelona. So... Isn't it weird that Algerians just happen to be messing around in, in, in Spain like we heard on the chatter? So it was enough to convince people to look into it deeper. It wasn't a lot to go on, but it was all we had. And that's what I did. I just did it that way. So if you have a point paper, that's what you want to do. You want to try to gather as much information as you can to, to push that point across. You might have more than my, I did. I mean, I'm telling you, I was stretching that thing out. I had everything in there but the kitchen sink and aliens. But what are you going to do? I honestly believed in my gut that I, I had something, and, and I was right. All right, that was number two. Number three, the position paper, or possibly what they normally call now a uh, food for thought. All right? But a position paper, you know, from my experience and, and what's been used in the past and possibly still used in the, in the future, is something that it's like a point paper, but it's much larger because... Unlike a point paper that doesn't give you a lot of room to make some points, you just want to make a couple valid points or facts and, you know, get it over with. With a position paper, it's not really about a bunch of theory. It's about a lot of a lot of research that you put into it. A, a perfect example would be, 
and, and this is something that's been around to this day, okay? In, in the 50s, there was a position paper put together on how can we stop the North Koreans from invading and taking over South Korea? Now, remember, in the 1950s, uh, North Korea didn't even have any nuclear weapons yet. They didn't even gain access uh, to the technology or any of that stuff until the 90s. So they didn't have anything like that. But there was an, enough land there that they could have come across. I mean, their army, even at that point, was about three times larger than anything that South Korea can put together. So there, it was in a particularly interesting military situation where it's one of the few places in the world where a, a standing army can literally go across the border to the next country and just take it over without need of, uh, of airplanes, which, by the way, to this day, they don't even have much of an air force. It's all the army and some artillery. But it's all they would have needed to take over. So the U.S. Army put together a position paper which pretty much said, well, we, the only way we can really stop this is we have to mine that entire area. This way there's no way they can bring tanks across, artillery, men or anything. They all get blown to pieces. And many of those mines wasn't always conventional mines. Many of them were the small tactical nuclear weapons. So, I mean, it would literally wipe out all the equipment, the men, everything. The ironic um, edge for this, for the North, is that, okay, damn it, like, we can't get across to the South Korea to take them over, but then the Americans and the South Koreans, they can't get across to get to us because the mines are there to stop them too. And they've been there to this day, over 70 years later. And they are a principal reason why North Korea has never been able to take over South Korea, you know, in a military fashion through the... Uh, through the use of, uh, of, of his uh, army because it wasn't possible. They, they really solved it. And that was a position paper that literally said, here's this problem, here's what we think is a solution, this is what it's going to take. You know, a position paper like that it, it also reads almost like a, a laundry list of all the things that you're going to need to be able to make this accomplished. You know what I mean? This many trucks to bring all these mines in, they got to be dug in this fashion. And we have to do it probably in the springtime where the ground is softer so we can get this completed in a month or two versus the winter where it's too hard to, to dig and, and you, you'll cause safety issues and, you know, all of that. And that was it. That position paper it was it was necessary to go up to the higher staff uh, of the military and then, of course, eventually over to the civilian leaders who have to, you know, have to be sold on this as well so they can fund something like this and make it happen. So that's really what a position paper is. It's extremely important because... Oftentimes, a position paper can help set policy, policy that could last for years. So in this particular case, when we're talking about North and South Korea, decades from one paper, from one act that would happen. So it really is something that moves and shakes in the, in the military, okay? I know the movies, you, everybody's smoking a cigar or, or, or having a... a having a coffee, and, and, and they all rattle a couple of macho things. Now it's done, and let's go do something. Uh, but in real life, <laughs> okay, these position papers are necessary because it doesn't matter how many generals in the room yelping and yelping and this and that and all this other stuff. In the end, we live in a free society where the civilians run things. So uh, they're not going to do anything just because of a couple of generals are burping up some ideas in some room somewhere. They got to have a position paper, and they have to have facts, and they have to have research. Now, these papers could be anything from ten to a hundred pages, depending on what it what it's about. But nevertheless, 
It's a really solid piece of, of, of military writing and, of course, research. The position paper is about research as well as it's about writing because you're asking for something major to happen. Major, meaning that maybe massive amounts of money are being spent or entire areas have to be dozed over or rebuilt or, in this case, thousands of mines have to be inserted in the ground forever. So... Uh, when it's something major, well, that's what a position paper will do. It, it's just, it calls for something like that. And it's not something that's for theory. It's not something for guesswork. You're not writing something like that. Yeah, maybe this will stop the North Koreans, man. No, it, it, it's something like that at all. There's no maybes in the position paper. You're setting out, this is why this problem exists. This is why I think we can solve it. Here's how we can solve it. Here's what's going to happen in the end. So it, that's pretty much what it's doing right there. And it's putting together loads of facts, loads of research, all kinds of interesting ideas, direct, formal, definitely a, an active voice to, to ring into people's ears about something that you want to call attention to, something you believe should happen. All right. Next, number four, executive summary. Now, there can be two different kinds of executive summaries. Not to say that there couldn't be any more. Hell, there could probably be 20 of them. But there's two that I'm really aware of, okay? Because I've, I've involved in two of them, you know, during my uh, time as a military intelligence analyst when I was in the U.S. Air Force. The first is when somebody literally hands you a report, whether it's your, your direct person in command or a general or whatever. Yeah, yeah, Sergeant Rossi here. And the assignment is, you got to break down some big report that was given so they can get some idea about what, what, how useful it is. Does it have any weight to it? Does it, does it have any merit to it? Is it just something corny? Is it something political? So that's the first thing. You're maybe taking the report that you're reading, reading it all, writing down notes, and then you got to put together an executive summary. And we'll go over the four points that are necessary to put this type of paper together. The next type of executive summary... It's a, it's a little bit more unusual one, but it's still unnecessary. You might be sent, you know, as that administrative aide or maybe as that analyst like I was, to a location where somebody's giving a lecture on something that has some military bearing. You're going to be sitting there with a pad and literally writing all this stuff down and then create an executive summary based on somebody's lecture, based on someone's already pr presentation, based on maybe somebody giving you a, 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 like, a like a film uh, of something they, they captured covertly, then now you've got to write a report on that. Or it could literally be that you have to go to a meeting and you're literally writing in the meeting what happened and creating an executive summary from that meeting. Because it's not a meeting that's 10 minutes long. It's a meeting that's there for like a couple of hours. That's what they would ask you to do. Mainly this reason is, this is done for is not because you have officers that are out there that are lazy. And it's not because they're stupid. The truth of the matter is, is that many a times... Someone like you was tasked to do this is because you have more of an expertise of that subject matter. You can kind of grapple with it more and distill it into something that uh, another general might not have the, the field in. But now you've actually educated that general. That's the major reason why this is done. Now here are the four points of an executive summary, okay? And it doesn't matter whether it's uh, you're doing it from a written report that you're assigned to or if you're doing it from, like I said, an oral or a film orientation. Okay, the first one is 
you're developing a, a quick summary of the main conclusions and justification. So literally, right in the beginning of this, this executive summary, you're already putting out up front what these people are saying. Yeah, um, they're concluding uh, that we can't really run submarines near that island because the, 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 the ground is kind of like shallow in the water and it, it'll run into stuff and get stuck. And uh, so we have to either figure out a way to, to deepen that area or we got to like just operate farther away. Okay, Those are the conclusions. Let's say I have some report. Next, an explanation of the problem studied. So you want to be able to explain why they think something has to get done. Well, we think the water's too shallow over there. Well, you know, this and that. There's too many rocks. Maybe the weather's not so great over there. It has too many storms, etc., etc. Okay? You want to explain what the problem is there. That's number two. Number three, a summary of the process used to study the problem. Okay? Well, if you're saying that the weather is crappy on a regular basis, well, you're going to have to bring some weather reports and something that says, yeah, the weather people say that on a regular basis, this place gets hit with storms. That's not good for submarines, okay? Because then they'll crash into the rocks and everybody dies. Or uh, we use some satellite uh, pictures and be able to tell some of the area of this, and it's, it's just not really as strategic as we thought it was going to be. Or, of course, a diver said that this water really is too shallow for this. You know, we'd have to figure out a way to dig in the ground uh, somehow in order to make it deeper. There you go. All right. So it's a small summary, a bullet point maybe of the process of how the problem was studied. Last is the outline of the recommendations or decisions. So what you're doing on something like this is, and you can go uh, two different ways on this. You can literally outline what they've concluded in that meeting or in that film or what they discovered. Or you could do, which I had to do once, is outline it. But also divert by saying, listen, I agree on this point, but I'm not sure about how they get to this. Because I'm looking at this and I'm not seeing how they're getting that. Is that a theory? Are they guessing? Is this just a wrong point? So your outline might actually include their reasoning and their conclusions and even their plan of action. And maybe possibly add something more to it. This is what they're thinking. I think maybe we should go this direction, modify it this way. So you can do that as, as, in a part of an executive summary that, again, helps show that not only you're paying attention, but also you're kind of grabbing the problem by its horns, and maybe you might have a, a better solution, or maybe your modified solution, based on what they came up with, is really the, the ultimate answer to all of this. They can be very, very helpful in an executive summary because when somebody is trying to put together a plan in motion, this executive summary can help push it in that direction. All right, last... It's probably the most popular piece of military writing that's going to be out there. You're going to see it the most. You'll probably be a part of it the most. The military report. There are so many of them that, that it's, 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 there's no way you're not going to get around to seeing one or doing one on a regular basis. It becomes so common. And, and, and maybe even see, you know, seem like they're, they're routine. But guess what? Routine or not, a military report, just like all the other writing, is critical to help the people above you understand what's going on. And again, how it's organized and what you're doing says a lot about who you are as a soldier. Not as much as a writer, but as a soldier. So when you're writing a report, as much as possible, you want to try to know your audience. Who's going to read this thing? It's important to know that. Because especially if you know that it's necessary 
for maybe maybe to bring out certain aspects of it because you know that uh, audience or that person would want to hear that. Well, then you want to do that. Then that makes that report that much more successful, or maybe it, it just it lands better. You want to put down vital information in your report, okay? But you want to keep it factual. It's not a place for theories. You could do a theory in a point paper, but not in a military report. You got to stick to the facts, and that's it. All right. If you want to venture off with just putting, a, I think we could try this or a guess on that. You could do something like that, but you make you need to make it clear that that's what that is. You don't want to make it like it's part of a fact. So you can literally state a fact about, I believe this island is not a good place to have a strategic landing because the water is just too shallow and it can ground ships and blah, blah, blah. You know, and then you could put in your own theory. Maybe we should look at another island. Maybe we should simply find a way to dredge it. Maybe we should just go about it in a different manner. But you could put that in there too, but you want to make sure that they understand that that's not a fact. That's just maybe possibly an option. All right? You always want to make your military report to be formal and impersonal. Okay? So it's not a place for jokes. It's not a place for, you know, light humor. It's certainly not a place for anything that is not of the utmost professional uh, adherence to, to military bearing. Now, unlike all the other writing for the military, the military report has a lot of commonalities with the literary structure of a short story. In the military report, okay, you need to have it divided into three parts. The first part is the introduction. Right away, you're stating the purpose and even the contents of the report. This purpose is to determine, you know, if Island XYZ is a good staging point for naval surveillance, blah, blah, blah. And here are the information that's going to be in here. Uh, we're, we're, we're including uh, weather examination, satellite examination, diver examination, etc., etc. Okay? That's the introduction. Boom. That's the first part of it, the beginning. There's the middle section. The middle section is a lot of the research, a lot of the content about, about you know, what, what you're discovering and everything. This water's shallow. I don't think it's good for a lot of ships. Even though this island does seem strategic, there's a lot of weather issues that we have to keep in, keep in mind. How do we protect our ships and our, and our people? You know, etc., etc. That's the middle. Then there's the end part. That spells out the conclusion. All right? And that's where you're pretty much you're dropping the hammer on something. Boom. This is what I think is the best way to go. Put it in a couple of sentences. Get that done. I recommend, just like a, a piece of literary work, that the military report, because it, it has such such gravity to it in terms of going up the chain of command, that you want to write a first draft before you even try to put together a final report. It's really important. It'll help you to uh, adhere to the rules of military editing. It's going to help you with cohesive military writing. It's certainly going to help you making sure that you've taken care of any kind of spelling errors, any kind of grammar. And a lot of those other reports, you can get away with a little of that. Because a lot of that's resting on research. And a lot of that's resting on the drama of you pushing a certain point. In the military report, it tends to be more of a, a, of a drier thing. So people will notice right away if you're spelling something wrong. Or if it, the grammar is horrible. If the sentence structure is out of, out of whack. It sounds ridiculous. You don't want that. So when you write the first draft, it'll help you correct anything that you might have messed on beforehand. Then you can write that final report. Do whatever you can to proofread it. 
If you got someone you trust, maybe you can have them read it as well to make sure you kind of ironed out all of that before you submit that. Okay? I I used to be pretty fanatical about military reports, especially as an analyst, because you're kind of giving people a snapshot of some of the direction that you're trying to go when you're working on, on, a, on an analytical intelligence problem. So I, I would literally go to the last minute before I submit it because I'm trying to see if I can add anything to it. I want to see if it's if written well enough that I, that I think it's going to have some kind of impact or at least it's going to convey what I'm trying to work on, what some of my thoughts are on. Obviously, I want to try to make sure that it's as organized and as structured as possible because, again, we talked about this before, it is a reflection of you, of your military status, of your military professionalism, possibly even of your military mind. You might change people with your reports. They might think of you as somebody even greater than you realize. They might see futures for you that you didn't see. They might see progress for you or promotions for you that you didn't see just because of your military reports. So it's really important. I always wait till almost the last minute before I submitted it. I'm never one of those people that are going to, yeah, you got two days on this and I'm submitting it the first day. To me, it's, it was almost like a, like a bad luck charm to do that, almost like I was superstitious. I'm like, no, I might submit it a few hours before it's due, but hell if I'm submitting it a day before it's due. Not happening. Just didn't believe in it. I'm not suggesting that you do the same, but I am suggesting that if you're comfortable in submitting it, you better make sure you've read it over three or four times and make sure you rewrote it at least twice. If you're not doing that at least, you're going to submit something that's going to be a problem. Okay? You want someone to get some good ideas from some of your military thinking. You don't want somebody like, you know, calling you on the phone later. What the hell is up with these sentences and what's going on with all these misspellings? Are you nuts? I mean, if they got to point that out, anything you could have said, no matter how incredibly great it was, gets get ruined. So don't let proofreading and grammar screw up some of your uh, your brilliant ideas or maybe even your your wonderful writing up until that point. See, that, that's how it does. It just takes a few things to ruin everything. You know, it's like working hard on the garden and then locusts come and start eating everything. You know, it's just, it just breaks your heart. But you're responsible for that, not anybody else. All right, folks, that's all I have for military writing. I'm hoping this will be a helpful thing to you. It certainly is a crash course. I wanted to try to be as interesting and inspirational as possible. I also wanted to continue to remind the military people that what you write could save somebody's life. It could save a project millions. It could possibly escalate your, your career, elevate you. It could actually let somebody see you in a new light they didn't see before. So keep all that in mind. I know it sounds like a lot of pressure, but it isn't. But what's important to put in military writing is the same thing I say in literary writing. Put yourself in it. Be honest. Be direct. Speak your mind. What is the point of doing anything? I, I feel, especially if something as important as a military uh, service or even a military career, if you can't even do that. You can't live in fear. You can't operate in fear in the field. Then how the hell are you going to operate in fear writing something down that should be important, that you should be passionate about? So keep that in mind and do that, and it'll work out. I never really had any problem with any of these reports. I don't believe you will, too, as long as you stick to what we talked about here. Take it serious. All right, and, and be straight about it. Just be honest. All right, folks, for all you out there that are serving, God bless. I know what, what it is like to be out there away from your families in a faraway place for a long time. 
I know what it is to be out in peace. I know what it is to be out in war. So God bless you all. Folks, good night. This is Mark Anthony Rossi. That was Crash Course in Military Writing, episode 191, Strength to be Human. That's the name of the show. My name is Mark Anthony Rossi. Good night and God bless. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.